How's everybody doing this morning? Good. This is one of my favorite Sundays. Julie will tell you uh, communion is, is one of the highlights of my life. And we gather together today. Um, so often in our Western paradigm, it's a sober and somber moment where we gather together with little cups and little bread. It it's, seems like we're in someone's playhouse. But, you know, really... Those are symbols and those are signs. And the reason we gather together, it is a love feast. We're here to celebrate and rejoice that the Lord has come and he has saved us from our sins and he has bathed us in his blood once and for all, Hebrews tells us. Not that it needs to happen repeatedly and that there's a covering and a protection for our greatest felonies and our greatest sins because, as as we had talked about before, we are all chief among sinners. And if that's not reason to rejoice and gather together and hug one another and celebrate and be together with brothers and sisters, that we as a family in Christ have every reason to rejoice, which the world beyond these doors, living in sin and darkness and in bondage, have no capacity or awareness to know a love that is not a love from this earth, but that's a love from above. So um, I'm just looking forward to this morning and, and the time to get together to celebrate the greatness of our Savior and the greatness of our salvation together with the people of God, where the Spirit of Christ is present and Christ himself is present in a special and meaningful way, and where we have an opportunity, as Paul says, by drinking the cup and taking the bread, by participating in the glory of the cross together. So that's what's in store for us this morning. I want to give you a couple of updates. We had a sweet time with the men yesterday. Um, we had around 30, 30 plus men who gathered and we went through uh, acts together and it was just a sweet and encouraging time. And I've also had uh, a very sweet time with your five elder nominees. I, it was maybe sweeter for me than for them. Uh, I've tried to follow Christ's model that it's better to give than receive. So I've given them a lot of work to do. Um, and the spirit of of the Lord, but they have just been a joy to be with, uh, a joy to go through the process and spend time with them on the phone and then meet together and pray together. We will probably publicly start in earnest. Privately, we've already begun with the men. Publicly, we will probably start in earnest, Lord willing, next Sunday, where you will see the men visibly walking down this path. And I just want to exhort you that we walk down this path together in Christ as our Lord and Savior as one people. We all fall short. We're all imperfect men. Uh, but we are here together and let's pray for the men and love them and support them in this endeavor. And Lord willing, sometime this week I hope to have posted for you what I've given, some of the materials I've given to them, which is the elder vetting process, the checklist of everything uh, that has been placed on their plate. So you can pray for them and so that you can see what the process is. And then if you have questions, you can ask ask them or myself about that process, and it will be a work in progress, but we'll walk towards that with hope and great expectation to see not who man has chosen, but who the Lord has set apart uh, for this uh, great service, basically to be his servants at this church. Um, Let's open, shall we, in prayer as we come to the text of God's word. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for who you are, that you're a good and gracious God, that the testimony of communion, the celebration of your blood and your body that was shed because of our sins is just a testimony, Lord, that you are gracious and you love sinners and that you love the least among us and that you not only called us and created us to be like you, Lord, you gave yourself and gave everything so that we could be new creations and so that we could enjoy your love and participate in a way that, humanly speaking, and in and of our sinfulness, we could never do apart from you. Uh, Lord, you have not only given us the remedy, but you are the remedy, and uh, we celebrate that today, Lord, and we thank you for that. Open our hearts, open our ears. May this be a sweet time, Lord Jesus, and may our eyes and hearts see nothing but you this morning because you are all and everything that we need. You are the bread of life, Lord, and you are the only source of life, and we look to you, Lord, for our homes, our families, our work, every aspect of our lives, that you would be indeed our bread of life this day. In your name we pray, amen. The text I'd like to begin to draw your attention to is it's going to be Exodus 12, but we're going to do it um, and start by way of Matthew 26. Um, Let's look at Matthew 26, shall we? And we're going to backtrack a little bit. Uh, We dealt last week with Peter's betrayal, but we're 
moving a little bit backwards for the sake of communion, to look at the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples on the eve or the night before he was to be crucified. Matthew 26, and we will start in verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The hymn that we just sang, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, was written by who? I know there's Piper fans out there, and um, he's done great work to fill us in on the details of the stories and the histories of the great men of God who have stood before us and have laid the foundation for us. It's a man named William Cooper, last name C-O-W-P-E-R. If you massacre names like I do, maybe you say William Cowper. Um, But William Cowper was a man which, if you've read Piper's books, that he was a man who struggled with depression. Um, And in an era of American history where we were very much focused on happiness and love is all about happiness and good feelings and we're selling that in every door and corner step and TV show. Um, It's very counterintuitive to think of Christians who struggle with depression. And yet if we go through the text of God from Genesis to Revelation, we see that there were many great men of God who struggled with depression struggled with sorrow, struggled with broken hearts, struggled with being grieved. Uh, We think of Jeremiah the prophet, we think of Elijah, and as we move forward into the New Testament, we we read last week about Peter as a man whose heart was broken, who wept bitterly, and then we move forward and we see among the, the great men of God, you know, Martin Luther himself was known to struggle with bouts of depression, and we look at William Cowper and writing that hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, and we see some of the most profound and beautiful lyrics about our Savior and our salvation and the atonement that we have received in forgiveness of sins coming from a man who was heartbroken for reasons, many of them which we don't entirely know, but we can say in the bigger picture that for men of God, We live in a fallen and sinful world, and not only our sins, but the sins of others and the sins of those we love. For the people of God, as we talked about in the parable of the unforgiving servant, that the people of God have right and reason at different times and different seasons to be grieved and to be sad and to be heartbroken. Uh, And there are times when the Lord calls us to walk in the darkness. He calls us to walk in the darkness, and yet he is holding our hand and walking with us each step of the way. And as we look at that and we see the beautiful words that William Cowper wrote about, or William Cooper, excuse me, wrote about, as far as there is a fountain filled with blood and the hope that comes from that, uh, as he was mentored by John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, we look back and see how God worked in his life and gave him an appreciation, perhaps for a man who saw the darkness of sin in this world a little more clearly and a little more closely than many of us have, perhaps through things that he walked to or experienced in his life. And yet through that, he was able to have an amazing appreciation for the blood of the Lamb that comes 
which we need to bathe in and washes us once and for all, for all our sins, and the liberty and freedom and joy and the hope that he had that one day, even though we sing with stutters and even though we struggle to see sometimes the light in times of darkness, it is the blood of the Lamb, is it not, and the testimony of the cross that gives us hope not that we have to earn our salvation day by day, minute by minute, but that has already been accomplished no matter what our emotions, no matter how we feel, no matter how heartbroken we are over our sins or the sins of others. The testimony that gives us hope is the cross and the blood of the Lamb that points to the fact, as Hebrews said, once and for all, once and for all, Christ has died for the forgiveness of sins. And without the shedding of blood, there cannot be the forgiveness of sins. But Christ, in his perfection and in his beauty as true God and true man, came to live a life that you and I could never live and came to be the perfect sacrifice for us and came to wash away our sins so that we might have that hope in Christ that we are new creations in Christ that the Lord will finish the work that he's begun in us and that one day, as William Cooper sang and hoped for, we will sing that song perfectly and beautifully with the words of God and not the words of men. And that is the hope that we gather together today for communion to celebrate, to celebrate the love of Christ and to proclaim his death until he returns. And so to give you a glimpse or maybe a bigger appreciation this morning, we're doing things slightly differently. We're going to do our teaching, which is going to be on communion, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to go straight into communion. Our teaching is going to be Exodus 11, Exodus 12, by way of Matthew 26. If we look at each one of the Gospels, they point out and make a point to note that the night before Jesus died, he was gathered together with his disciples celebrating a meal. And what was that meal? It was the Passover feast. It was one of the major Jewish celebrations, perhaps the oldest Jewish feast of the Jewish people. It was instituted before they were even a nation, while they were on the eve of leaving Egypt. And they had to celebrate that, and there were really two feasts that were combined together and are almost known as one, the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when Jesus instituted the Last Supper, he intentionally did it on the evening of the Passover feast. And the evening of the Passover feast was by no accident the night before he died. And we're going to get into those reasons. And the reason for the Passover feast has direct implications for our understanding of why we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so what I want to do is I want to take you back to Exodus, to Exodus 12, where this is instituted. And I want to look at the preparation for the Passover feast, because this is what Jesus walked his disciples through to prepare them for the cross. We're going to look at the practice of the Passover feast. We're going to look at the purpose of the Passover feast, and we're going to look at the people of the Passover feast. And then we're going to come back to our own Lord's Supper today and see how that framework provides us with an insight in what Christ and his blood means for us today. So work with me backwards, if you will, to Exodus chapter 11 and 12. I'm going to read most of 12 and a little bit of 11. Exodus 11, and I'll just read the first uh, few verses. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. The context in the background, of course, is that the people of Israel, they're not even a people right now. The children of Abraham, the descendants of Jacob, are slaves in Egypt under a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And they are waiting in bondage, and they have experienced nine different plagues, and Pharaoh has resisted, and he would not let them go to serve and worship the Lord their God. And so the Lord says, I will bring one last plague. And then we move down to chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, one, 
on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb will be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat, eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with the water, but rather roasted with fire both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not eat, excuse me, and you shall not leave any of it over until the morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt in that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance in the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come to your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes, and the people bowed down low, and they worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. The background or the context of this, we're all aware, we've seen the movies, The Prince of Egypt, we've seen the Ten Commandments with Charles Heston with that big, huge beard and the Ten Commandments. The context of this situation is that the children of Israel are in bondage, in the bondage of slavery in Egypt. At that time, Egypt was the world power, the equivalent, let's say, of the United States. They were the height of civilization. 
All the trading routes were anchored in Egypt. Anything that happened in Egypt, similarly to what happens in America, all eyes were on Egypt. And so people knew the different events and knew the different problems and knew the different leadership because as things went in the leadership of Egypt, so went with the rest of the ancient Near East in many ways. Wars, conflicts, trade routes, all of those things. And when we come to this passage, we find that after 430 years of being in the Egyptian area, the people are in a state of woeful bondage, that the height of civilization, the best that man could provide, with all the gods of Egypt, the god of Ra, of Sun, the gods of frogs and locusts, and, and the gods of the river, all of these things, the gods of the Nile, all of these things brought together in their pinnacle of civilization and ancient Near East spirituality, was actually a framework for bondage and oppression of taking people and causing them to be slaves and to be fearful and frightened and to put them under woeful and, and harmful oppression, even to the point where the Pharaoh, basically, as we know, wanted to kill children in order to limit the growth of the Israelites so that they would not be a threat to his kingdom. And so we see the children of Israel really in the bondage of sin and the bondage of darkness and the bondage of everything that the world esteems as great. And the Lord comes and says, in remembrance of his covenant to Abraham, that I have heard, I have seen their cries, I have heard and I have remembered. And my steadfast love endures forever. And so I will come in faithfulness to my covenant to Abraham and I will rescue this people and I will set them free from the bondage of mankind and the bondage of sin and the bondage of slavery in Egypt and everything that it represents. And of course, you know the story that God brings plagues at the hand of Moses to let Pharaoh know that he indeed is God, not Pharaoh or the Egyptian gods. And that Pharaoh is to let his people go free the Lord's people, go free so that they might go and worship him and that they might become a people. And we know from the big story of the context that the Lord is doing this to bring them to Mount Sinai to inaugurate the covenant at Sinai, a marriage vow to form them into a people of his own, to set them apart and to shed blood over them and to sanctify them so that they would be a holy kingdom and a holy people and a group of priests for the world so that the world could see and know God through them, that they would be a window to the glory of God's love and salvation for the world. And part of the preparation in the beginning comes with a new creation and a salvation, that he would come and save and redeem his people and liberate them from the sin and the power and the bondage of the world. But as you know, he brings these nine plagues, and Pharaoh each time says, yeah, maybe, no, I don't think so. And you can easily look in your MacArthur Study Bible, which is, reflects much of the study that's been done in the ancient Near East, but each one of those plagues that the Lord brings is directly against a specific God of the Egyptians. And God is sending a very clear message these are your gods. These are the things that you worship. This is the source of darkness in the land. I will slay them all, and I am greater. And each time, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt find some way of rationalizing that maybe that's a fluke or our magicians can do a better job, and they're in complete denial, and they refuse to honor the one true living God. And so we see something is happening on a global scale here, and yet, brothers and sisters, don't we all in America struggle with the same things where signs and wonders are done and God demonstrates many things to us in Christ of who is the true God and Lord of all things. And yet somehow in our own hearts, even when it's obvious or miracles are done, we find a way to resist. And yet we find Pharaoh in the same way doing the same things. And finally, the Lord comes and says there's a tenth plague. And the tenth plague is what? He's going to send the angel of death over the nation of Egypt as all eyes watch. And the destroyer is going to slay the firstborn of everything. Cattle, livestock, all of these things, as well as their children. And of course, 
We've talked about this before. The notion of the firstborn is the highest in position in the family. It is the one who is going to carry on for the next generation the power and the authority and the life of a particular family or a particular community. It is a representative spot. In as much as Christ, we talk about being the firstborn of God. And God is going to come and he is going to judge, it tells us in Exodus, all the gods and he is going to go right for the heart, life or death, and he's going to demonstrate that he, God, is the fountain of living waters and that he is the one who holds life and death in his hands. And he is also the judge and he is also the savior, the giver of life. And so as we look at really the preparation for the Passover feast, as he prepares the people for this Passover feast, the 10th plague in many ways is the preparation for the Passover feast. And that 10th plague as God comes in has a twofold purpose. The first purpose is it's an exercise of divine judgment. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. And we've talked about this before, that what is sin at its heart? It's not just a mistake. It is really our stealing God's glory for ourselves, that he has created each one of us to live for his glory and to give him glory. And inasmuch as we worship other gods or we swerve from his word or we do not honor him or obey him essentially what we're saying is God you've given me this life but I'm all about my glory not your glory and Egypt represented that in 3D it was just a blatant explicit in front of the entire world thumbing their nose at God and saying we're going to worship our gods we're going to worship our way And even if you come in and do miracles and show that you're the true God, we're still going to say, our way, our gods. And so Egypt stood for the glory of man that was resistant to God. And so as God brings judgment, the final tenth judgment, what he's doing is he's bringing judgment against the sin of the world. And that sin and that judgment, as Romans 3, excuse me, 6.23 tells us, is the wages of sin is what? It's death, it's life for life, that we have stolen life from God. And we have multiple life sentences in the way we've done that. And so God will come and bring accounts and he will bring his just and righteous wrath and said, you've stolen life, I will take life. And so this is an act of divine judgment. But at the same time, as God judges the sin of the world, it is also an act of divine salvation. Because what is it that holds us in bondage in our lives? What is it that restrains us from worshiping God? What is it that makes it difficult for us to gather and worship? Is it not our own sin? Is it not the sin of our hearts? Is it not the idolatry of our hearts? And so the Lord, in order to set us free in an act of judgment, also gives us an act of salvation and mercy and love. And perhaps the kindest thing that the Lord can do in each of our lives, as painful and as difficult as it is, is to come in and slay the sin in our lives and in our hearts. As Paul talks about in Romans 8 and 9, that we are to mortify or kill sin by way of the Spirit in our lives in order to be set free. And so we see as God comes in in the preparation for the Passover, he's coming in to judge sin and be righteous, and yet he's coming in to set his people free from the sin of the world that has kept them in bondage. And that's the setup to look at the practice of the Passover feast. What did they need to do with this? God is saying, I'm about to set you free, and you're about to get free from the bondage of Egypt, and you're about to go to the promised land. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to set up a feast. And it's interesting to note that as he gets ready to set them free and bring them out to be his people, he says, this is going to be the first month of your year. He sets the calendar. It's a new people. It's a new start. It's a new creation. And it's a new year. And it's a new year that is based on the salvation and the judgment of the Lord. And so to do that and to mark that, he introduces the feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And as we walk through that, there's two parts or two components. There's obviously a lamb that's involved, and there's also the blood of the lamb, and there's also bread that's involved, unleavened bread. And their preparation for the Passover is most interesting and most telling, especially as we look to the cross, that this process of what had to happen is that each family and home at this time, on the 10th day of this month, had to go out and find an unblemished male lamb of one year of age. 
And it's not just like they went to the butcher store and said, get me some lamb chops and we'll have a dinner tonight with lamb and herbs and we'll celebrate that. It's not like our, our Christmas or Thanksgiving where we basically buy a frozen turkey or a butterball from Vons. They had to take this lamb, a one-year-old unblemished male, and they had to take it into their home. And it's not like the execution or the killing happened that evening or that moment. That lamb had to live with them for several days. And you can imagine what the interaction was as that lamb was part of the homestead. The children would get to know the lamb. The family would get to know the lamb. The lamb would have a personality because he was not part of the herd. He is now separate and he has come apart. And he has a special place in the home for a short period of time. In essence, in many ways, that little lamb became part of the family. And at the end of that time, after several days in the family, the head of the household or the elders were asked at twilight at a given time altogether to take that lamb and to kill that lamb. And it was a public killing. It wasn't private. It wasn't Uncle Joe in the back shed. You know, and then here comes dinner. It was a very public and visible event. And when we look at the history of sacrifices in the Old Testament, the process which we may infer as we go further with the sacrifices is that the head of the household or the elders would place their hand on the head of the sheep or head of the lamb, and they would slit the lamb's throat, and they would let the blood run out, and they would collect that blood. If you've ever been at a butcher shop, and if you've ever seen these things live, it's a little rough. That's all I'll say. I had an uncle who owned an abattoir who owned a butcher shop with cattle, and, and uh, he gave me a tour one time of the stalls in the back where they did their business. And it's a little rough, but this was visible for everybody to see. There's a message that the Lord was sending at this time. He's saying that the wages of sin is death and that sin has a casualty and a consequence and it's not pretty and we can't hide it and we can't tuck it away. We can't tuck away sin like we could a pornographic magazine or looking on the internet, or being unfaithful in our thoughts or minds, that sin ultimately has very visible consequences. And that consequences is violent death. That we're told in Leviticus that the life is in the blood. That the blood God has ordained is a symbol for life. And as that blood is shed violently, it's a demonstration of the consequences of our own sin. And we think of that. If I say an unkind word to my wife, and I'm sinning and grieving God because I'm not speaking the truth in love. Ultimately, there is a violent crime that is happening at that time. There is a shedding of blood. There is a death of something in that relationship that cannot be recovered unless Christ comes in between and unless somehow that sin is covered. And the Lord is giving them a visual picture. This is the consequence of sin. This is the price of sin. It is violent death and it is the shedding of blood. And then the elders had to take that blood and they had to cover the household, the doorposts, in a very visible way and paint it with the hyssop and go over that area so that all would see. And after they did that, then they would have a feast and they would eat that lamb. And they had to eat all of it, everything, entrails, the whole package deal. Not any was to be left and whatever was left was to be burned. And... I think as we go to the New Testament, one of the things that you will see is that the food that was to sustain the people during the time of their salvation, where they were liberated from the bondage of sin and set free to become a people who could worship God, was to be what? The lamb that was slain, whose blood was a covering for their sin. That was to be their food. That was to be their sustenance, and they were to eat all of it, and whatever they couldn't eat was to be burned. There's a second portion to the feast, the feast of the unleavened bread, that the Lord said, in addition to the lamb being sacrificed and his blood coming as a covering for your household, you were to basically get rid of all the leaven in the house, all the yeast that will cause the bread to rise, 
and you were to eat these flat crackers, and you were to eat in haste and be ready to go, and it would be a symbol to you that your old life had passed away, that leaven in the Old Testament and the New Testament was a symbol of the evil influence of the world. And one of the messages that was being given to the people as they ate that was that they were ready for a new life and that the old things were passed away. Behold, all things had become new. And the old leaven that would continually be in their bread where they would make new bread by just breaking off a little piece of the leavened bread and use it as a starter loaf and continue to use that for every portion of bread to make it high and lofty and soft, that that was to be gone, that there was to be a symbol or a sign of hardship, of difficulty, but also of removing their entire past, that they were free from that, and that they had a clean start and something new. And the Lord goes on to tell us, as we look at this, as the blood, the lamb, and the bread, that there was a purpose to all of these things. He says that the blood would be used as a sign. The blood would be used as a sign, so that when the angel of death passed over, The Lord would not judge the sin of these people. He would judge the sin of everyone who did not come under the covering of the blood. And it's interesting. He says that you're not to go out of the house and you're not to go past that door for the entire evening. During the entire time of your liberation and your salvation, you need to be completely and entirely under the covering of the blood of the Lamb. And that is to be your salvation because as the rest of Egypt and everybody who does not have the covering of the blood comes under the wrath and righteous judgment of God against the sin of the world, you who are my people who I've loved and who I've provided a sacrifice for will be protected. Why? Because you're covered. Not that your sin is any less, not that your sin is any different, not that you're not just as guilty as anyone else, And it's not because of anything that you do, but it's because you're under the covering of the blood of the Lamb. And so when he says these are a sign for you, the bread and the blood, the idea of a sign in the Bible is this notion of a visible symbol that points to a spiritual reality. A visible symbol that points to a spiritual reality. Is there anything special in the blood of a Lamb? And we can say no. Hebrews tells us that by the blood of animals, no sin is forgiven. But it's pointing to the spiritual reality that God will sacrifice his own son in order to provide a covering for our sins one day. And Romans tells us that in his righteousness, he held back his wrath and his justice until the appointed time when Christ will come and be that Passover lamb. So when we look at a sign, for example... I wear a wedding ring, right? And those of you who are married wear wedding rings. That wet wedding ring is a sign, is it not? What does it point to? Points to the spiritual reality of the union of myself and Julie as one flesh before God. And we say, who God has called together, let no man separate. There is nothing in this ring that says, I have a great marriage. There is nothing in this ring. The marriage isn't lying in this ring. Okay? There's no magical powers in this ring that make me a special man or any different than any of the single brothers. It's the Lord who has done that and brought my life together with my wife and given me this marriage. But the ring serves as a sign and that it points to the Lord's provision of a godly woman in a marriage in my life as his gift of love to me. And so when the Lord comes and says that you're to celebrate this feast every year, and the blood is to be a sign, and the bread is to be a sign. He's saying that these are to be memorials that point to a spiritual reality, that your identity as a people who are a people of worshipers of God is built not on anything that you did, but it's built on my provision for your sin, my provision that comes from perfect blood that is shed from a perfect lamb that is capable of protecting you from the wrath of God. And if it's not for the blood, then you would be no different than all the Egyptians out there who deserve nothing but death. The purpose, the Lord says, is that the blood would be a sign 
And then he says that this is to be a feast day that is a memorial, a time of remembrance, that you will, every time that you celebrate this feast, that you will remember this day. Why does he say that? Because we forget. He wanted that specific day, the day of their salvation, the day they were delivered from sin and they became the people of God and they were set free to worship the Lord, to be remembered for their entire existence from one generation to the next. And we think of remembering in our way of putting my notes on my iPhone so that I can remember the 20 different things that I need to do to clean the house, to take care of Ethan, to get his milk out of the fridge. We think in an information age, excuse me, that remembrance is about remembering details. But when we look at scripture from the Old Testament to the two, the new, excuse me, the the notion of, of remembrance is an act of love. God talks about remembrance in the context of love. We talked about that last week when we talked about the name, Zachariah. Zachar, remember. Yah, the Lord. Remember, the Lord remembers that he does not forget that his steadfast love endures forever. And the notion of remembrance is the way that we express love to the Lord in that the children of Israel were called to remember his love for them and to live their entire lives under the framework of a remembrance of who God is and who they are and of the salvation that has brought them to that place into a loving relationship and that has set them free from sin. Part of the context that you can think about is the notion of a wedding anniversary. How great do you think my household would be if I forgot my wedding anniversary? Showed up, my wedding anniversary is is January 1st. And so January 1st has some of the best football games, I think, on TV, right? And so what would my life be like and what message would I send to my wife if I was there on the couch with a big bowl of of Doritos and nachos and, and all my favorite soft drinks and had the remote and I'm watching, you know, USC, you know, get whipped by the Texans, you know? It would be shameful, right? Hopefully, hopefully Bob would come alongside and say, Brother Mark is the older man. You know, you need to get it together a little bit here. This is not the path to take in your marriage, right? The idea is when we come together for a wedding anniversary and we celebrate, we're remembering the love of God and the love that he's put in our life. And we're honoring that time and that moment. And in fact, many times what we're doing is we are reenacting or participating in the love that was given. So remembrance is not only remembrance intellectually, but it's a way of expressing love and participating in that love. And as couples who are married, I think Albert celebrated his ninth anniversary yesterday, so we let him off the hook for not showing up to the men's Bible study. He got a pass, right, for loving his wife in that way. But as you go with each additional year and you remember, hopefully that remembrance is one of the ways in which our love grows for God and for the other person. As we look at the testimony of nine years for Albert, this is what the Lord has done in our midst. This is the gift that he's given, that the treasure that the Lord gives of his love and forgiveness just continues to grow with time and pay huge dividends. And so the Lord is asking them, as a purpose of this feast, to participate in his love and to receive it and celebrate it and enjoy it and enjoy it correctly by remembering who their God is, who they are, who they were, that they were slaves in Egypt. And within that context, remembering the greatness of their salvation and to remember the greatness of their God. And as we look at that framework, you can see exactly who the people are who participate in this feast. Number one person, of course, is God. If we can call it a person, we're saying, pointing towards Christ, we can say that there is the Passover lamb who comes in between. And then, of course, there are the people of God, those who come under the blood, those who, by faith, received the word of the Lord and obeyed and said, yes, indeed, I believe God is going to do what he says in his word, and I'm going to obey what he says, and I'm going to come under the blood of the lamb so that I might live and be free and become a worshiper of God and no longer a slave to sin. And then, of course, there are the people of judgment, 
the people of God's wrath, who are also there, who are also watching and who are also observing. They are the people who have refused, who have seen the testimonies of God, who have heard his word spoken, and yet in their hearts, they have hardened their hearts against God and they have hardened it to such an extent that even for some, God will say, I will continue to harden your heart as a judgment. And they are those who do not come under the blood of the Lamb. And they observe those who are saved, but they themselves in due time will receive judgment. As you see this, are you getting a little bit of an idea of why Jesus was crucified the day after celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples? And as Jesus gathers his disciples together and institutes the Lord's Supper, what he is doing is he is fulfilling the entirety of the Passover feast and unleavened bread himself. He is the fulfillment of that. He is the reality of what Hebrews tells us is the shadow of things to come. Those were signs. Those were symbols that pointed to the need for a sacrifice once and for all and for blood to be shed that was worthy and pure, not the blood of an animal, but the blood that was capable of forgiving all our sins once and for all. The Passover feast and the unleavened bread were pointing to a time when we would need a Savior who would come and do that once and for all, where he would give his body and he would give his blood for a people who, by faith, believing in him, would come under that blood and be washed in a fountain of blood from all their sins, past, present, and future, and that they would be saved from the bondage of their sin, the bondage of the wisdom of this world, the bondage of death, the curse of sin, all of those things, and to be set free from that, to become new creations, a new people, worshipers of God, who are free to worship God, free from sin, and can rejoice in that love, and to become a kingdom, as Peter will say, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart by God to proclaim the excellencies of our God and his salvation in Christ. That is your purpose. That is your destiny. And so Christ fulfills the Passover feast, and as he fulfills it, he institutes a new feast, the Lord's Supper, which is a celebration of the passing of the old covenant because it has been completely fulfilled in the cross and is no longer necessary because the reality is here, and an institution of the new covenant, which is the covenant in his blood. And so as he gathers them together and institutes this new feast, he takes the cup and he says, this is a symbol or this is a sign. This is my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. This is the blood that's shed for the new covenant. And then he also gives the bread and breaks it and hands it out to them and says, this is my body. Take and eat it. Same principles, but in a new way, in a real way, in a permanent and eternal way where God has brought the new covenant, where people can receive forgiveness from all their sins through faith, by coming under the blood of the lamb that's shed and to remain there and to honor that. But also there's the notion of us eating the Passover lamb. And as we take the bread and as we consume it, the testimony of what is being said, as Jesus said, this is my body, take eat, is that Christ is entirely the food for our lives. He is the bread of life. And the only reason that we are standing here, that we are new creations and new creatures who have been set free from sin to worship him, and that we have this new life, is because of the life that he gave and the only way that we can continue as children of God and worshipers of God, is being in the blood and by feeding on him, not the wisdom of the world, not our strength and resources, not how bright we are, not how great our programs we are, not how well we do church. It is Christ and Christ alone. He alone is the bread of life that gives life to our homes, our families, our work, and our church. And so we're called to celebrate it on a regular basis. Why? Because we're called to remember. We're called to remember. And we're called to remember as an act of love, 
an act of love of remembering who and what we were before the blood was shed and before we came under the blood, to remember the God who saved us, to remember the Passover lamb who came and dwelt among us and lived with us and became part of our family but was unjustly murdered visibly in front of all people and had his life taken and his blood shed and poured over the doorposts of your heart and your soul so that we would not receive the judgment and wrath of God. And we stand as God's people because of the blood that was shed, and we remember that, and we stand because of the body that was given, the life that, lived, that he lived perfectly on your behalf and my behalf, the life that we could never live so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. We gather together to remember him and to remember the love of God, and each time we come together and gather and celebrate, we have the opportunity to see the dividends of grace the dividends of the gospel grow in our hearts and lives. And each month as we gather together where we're maybe a little more like Christ than we were last month, and he's united us a little bit closer than we were a month ago, and he's brought us through trials and difficulties as we consider how we got here, that it's by the blood of the lamb and the life that was given, we can stand in awe and amazement and say, he is indeed finishing the good work that he's begun in our lives. And it's all because of him and not because of me. And if I consider what my life was like before in comparison to what it is now, how great is our God, how great is his love, how great is the Passover lamb who came and lived among us and became part of our family and died on our behalf, and how great is our salvation and how great will it be when he comes back again and we will celebrate that feast together with him. And so we do so also not only in remembrance, but we do so as a proclamation, a proclamation of Christ's death. We are people of the cross. We are people of his blood. We are people of his body. And we make a public statement among ourselves to say this is who we are and we proclaim it until he comes again and we live by this and this alone. And as we do that, Paul says, we are actually participating in the blood of Christ and we are participating in the body and we are one with him. That sacrifice once and for all, there's nothing magic in the body, there's nothing magic in the blood, in the bread and the wine, but what we are doing is that the spirit is present and as we remember, we participate in his love and there's a unique presence of the spirit of God as we come together to obey his command and to celebrate his love. That's what we're gonna celebrate in two or three minutes. Let's close in prayer and we'll get ready for communion. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. What a testimony that God himself would come and dwell among us and be with us for a season and know us and yet would sacrifice his life and be a lamb that's led to the slaughter and that his blood would be shed for our sins and that we stand here today because of you. Lord, may this be a time of remembrance of how great our God is, how great his love is, and how great you, the Lamb of God, were, are, and will be, and how our lives are united with you and that we live by the blood that was shed and the body that was given. Bless our time together, Lord Jesus, and may you be highly exalted. The bread of life and the Lamb of God, in your name we pray, amen.